this morning. But before we get there, let me just say this. Uh, talk a little bit about living for Jesus, which is what Christians are supposed to do. It's what we're called to do. And to live uh, uh, for Jesus uh, is to consciously and uh, consistently attempt to apply uh, gospel principles and uh, implications uh, to all the areas of our lives, to all aspects, all arenas of our, our lives. What does it mean when Paul writes that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he died, and that on the third day he was raised again according to the scriptures? What does that mean for your and my life? What does it mean in your relationships? What what does it mean in in business? Whichever side of the transaction you happen to be on. Or what does it it mean for how you study? Or what courses of study you, you take? And so forth and so on, we could go on. What, what does the gospel mean? What does living for Jesus mean? What does all this mean to our daily lives? But the Apostle Paul is a case study, if you will, in trying to live for Jesus in a fallen world. We uh, have been following Apostle Paul since uh, chapter 9 uh, for most of what we've looked at. Uh, since chapter 9 and uh, following him uh, as he lives out his life for Jesus living out the calling that Jesus had for him this particular uh, specific calling that uh, Jesus had for him and uh, so we've kind of watched him and eavesdropped on him uh, in his living for Jesus and uh, when you get to the first chapter, uh, first verse, pardon me, of, of chapter 21, as you read through that first section that we looked at last week, uh, you see Jesus, I mean, uh, Paul going against the counsel of his friends. Uh, he, he has a calling. He has a compulsion that is of the Holy Spirit, given to him by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has also revealed things to his friends, his teammates, if you will, on, on the mission team and, and others, the people that are hosting him and all along the way. And the revelation is that Paul will suffer if he goes to Jerusalem. So his friends who love Paul are concerned for him and they urge him not to go. And he goes anyway. And, and, and we saw all the tensions in that. In fact, we still have a tension within the church uh, over that today, over Paul's going. Was he right or was he wrong in doing so? And, and uh, there's a pretty good divide. And the majority said, well, he was right to follow the leading as he knew it of the spirit that had been coming to him. Uh, we read about it through several chapters that he's to go to Jerusalem. And yet he has those well-meant words of his friends who too have the spirit and uh, uh, who are concerned about what the Spirit has said is going to occur when he gets to Jerusalem. Well, he gets to Jerusalem. By verse 16, he's in Jerusalem. He's staying at the house of Manasseh, uh, a Cypriot there. 
And then we pick up at uh, verse 17. It's printed in your bulletin. If you have your Bible with you, that's the better place to, to look. If you have your, your iPad or, or your telephone or whatever in the world sort of electronic device you read your Bible on, that's the best place to look. But it's in the bulletin if you need it. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present, all the leaders of the church, James and the other leaders. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the, to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, 
We pray that you, by your Spirit, would teach us, would uh, not just uh, teach our head, but, oh Lord, that you would warm our hearts, that you would bring this Word of God to us by your Spirit and change us by Word and Spirit, that we might... uh, that we might grow in our understanding of the gospel and of its demands upon us. To the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, Paul was well received at Jerusalem. He was able to meet with James, who was the leader of the church there in Jerusalem, and with the elders. He brought them up to date on his ministry, and they were... uh, They were well pleased, and they praised God for what they heard. But then they told him how that many Jewish believers uh, thought he was teaching converted Jews to forsake Jewish laws and customs and suggested uh, that he join four men who were under a vow in their purification rites and that he foot the bill which he did, and that was supposed to convince the Jews uh, looking on that everything was all right, as well as the Jewish believers. And then almost at the end of that purification period, Jews from Asia, not Christian Jews, but but Jews from Asia who had apparently seen and heard of Paul there, uh, saw him in the temple and accused him of preaching against the law and defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile into it, which he hadn't, which aroused the people who dragged him outside to kill him and would have had the Roman commander <clears throat> not rescued him. Or to put it into a sentence. At Jerusalem, Paul, parenthesis, who, who at all times uh, was trying to live for Jesus in this fallen world, was wrongly accused, nearly killed, and taken into custody. And his experience informs your and my attempts at living for Jesus. That is, in consistently and conscientiously applying gospel promises, gospel principles, gospel implications in our lives. And if you are doing that, if you are consistently and conscientiously trying to apply the gospel to every area of your life, trying to live for Jesus, here I think are three truths that come up out of Paul's experience that you and I can take to the bank. The first one is this. If if you're trying to live for Jesus, and consciously and conscientiously and all that, trying to apply the gospel to life, you will probably suffer. And that shouldn't surprise you. What's the gospel? What's the gospel? Except the good news that Jesus Christ suffered. 
Now, Jesus' suffering alone isn't necessarily good news. But it said he suffered for you. That's the good news. He suffered and he died for you and for your sins and for your reconciliation with God his Father and your Father. He bore the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. He bore those very sins in his body on the cross. That's the good news. But then we go on from that. and We realize that we share in his suffering, not redemptively, but we share in his suffering. Remember what Jesus told him to to Paul or what he said about Paul to Ananias in Acts 9 we talked about it last week you go to him he said and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name Jesus about Paul and then Paul writes to the Romans in the 8th chapter the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Beautiful. Beautiful. Caveat. There's no period there. It goes on. Provided we suffer with him. Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 are jailed or brought before the, the authorities are beaten. And they left the presence of the council, it says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And remember this too, that you and I have been promised suffering. For it has been granted to you, Paul wrote to the Philippians, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Or his words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No qualifiers. Or the words of Jesus himself. In the world, you will have tribulation. Now he does add to that. But I have overcome the world. Suffer and its cognates, other words meaning the same thing. That word occurs and the others occur 13 times in the entirety of the Old Testament. 39 books. They occur 80 times in the New Testament. 27 books. 16 times in 1 Peter alone, which occupies four pages in my New Testament. If you're a Christian, you'll suffer. And if you're a Christian you already, and and have been a Christian for just any amount of time at all, you you know some of what I'm talking about. You you know what it's like if you're a parent to wake up in the middle of the night 
and cry out to God for your children. Especially perhaps for that one or more who have strayed or who have not of the faith and to struggle with God. You know what it's like to wake up and pray for grandchildren if you have them. Or for a spouse or for a friend or for family members who are outside the faith, need to be inside the faith. You know what it is to worry about a brother or sister in Christ who are falling into sin, who are drifting from where they once were. You probably already know what it's like to be thought strange by your friends and certain family members. If you've been a Christian for a little while, you know what it's like not to fit anymore into your culture like you once did. Now that is pretty mild suffering. In fact, there are some in this world who would just scratch their head that would even call it suffering. But we will suffer. It's a matter of degrees. And I'm not about to say that we all suffer to the same degree or we will suffer to the same degree. Just look around you. But we'll suffer. The second thing that you can take to the bank if you're trying to live for Jesus and, and to conscientiously and, and, and uh, uh, consistently apply the gospel in your life is that everything probably won't go smoothly. Look at Paul's missionary efforts. I mean, there were those times when he was, when he was extraordinarily successful. He went to Ephesus. <clears throat> and, you know, we just got through hearing about all the things that went on in Ephesus and, and how the magicians came and had this huge bonfire and, and, and they burned all their books of magic. And I read sometime a long time ago, and I can't remember for the life of me, what those books were worth monetarily uh, would be in our day. And it was a huge sum of money. They didn't donate them to the local library. They didn't give them to... Uh, to people who were still practicing the magical arts, they brought them and they burned them. Great things happened at Ephesus. But then there's Paul not being quite so extraordinarily successful, trying to go into Bithynia to bring the gospel, and the Spirit won't let him. So he tries to go into Asia to bring the gospel. The Spirit won't let him. So he gets to somewhere where he can preach the gospel, and they haul him out of town and beat him and leave him for dead. And then he gets finally to Athens, and nothing really happens. He's almost as extraordinarily unsuccessful as he's extraordinarily successful. Things didn't go real smoothly in Jerusalem. (laughs) And understand what Paul was doing in Jerusalem. He was bringing an offering from the Gentile believers to the church in Jerusalem that was suffering. And in so doing, what he was doing was trying to unite 
the Jewish and Gentile believers. He was working for the unity of the church, if you will, for our unity. And, and that didn't go that well. <laughs> and so he's wrongly accused and he's almost killed and he's taken into custody. Did he fail? Was he a, a failure? Paul? How else was he going to get to Rome except to be taken into custody by the Roman soldiers? shipped there ultimately at their expense. How was he to witness before kings? I quoted somebody last week on, on that very thing. Had he not gone to Jerusalem and this hadn't happened, he wouldn't have been in Caesar's household and been familiar with members of the household and, and wouldn't have had the opportunity to lead him to Christ. He wouldn't have had time before Festus and Agrippa to testify to them of the gospel of grace. Your seeming lack of success doesn't necessarily mean that you've failed. If you go back in history, in the early 4th century AD, Diocletian was uh, the Roman emperor. <clears throat> he began persecuting Christians, and at the height of that persecution, plague broke out. And the pagans would take their sick relatives and dump them in the street. Pagans still do that. We call it abortion. Or, what's the other word for the other thing, killing old people? I should know that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just hope the day doesn't come when my grandchildren say, well, you know, it's time to take old pops and, you know, put him down. <laughs> What is that? Euthanasia. There is the word. I knew there was a word for it. If I stumbled around long enough, I'd find it. So the Christians who they were persecuting took them in. These dying pagans whose families had thrown them out in the street. And they cared for them and they nursed them. And as a result, a number of the Christians died from the plague that they caught from the pagans who had been thrown out into the street and to whom they, trying to follow Jesus, ministered to. Eusebius, the early church historian, said, the best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. So death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. They weren't burned. They weren't fed to the lions. They died from the plague. They got helping their enemies, nursing them to health, or at least attempting to. If the measure of things was their lives, if the measure of things was their lives, they failed. They failed. But is are our lives the measure? of things is the question so have you failed when you're trying to live for Jesus and everything goes wrong when nothing goes smoothly nothing goes as you had hoped it would 
fail. Perhaps, perhaps you spectacularly succeeded as those early Christians had. And the third thing that you can take to the bank if you're trying to live for Jesus and apply the gospel and all that is that you'll usually be out of step with everybody around you or most of the folks around you. They won't understand you they, any more than they understood Paul. You know, nobody really understood His friends didn't understand him. The Jewish Christians didn't understand him. The Gentile Christians didn't understand him. The Gentiles didn't understand him. The Jews didn't understand him. Does everyone understand you? Ponder that. Because if you can answer yes to that, you've got a problem. You may have a host of problems. And misunderstanding you, they'll misrepresent you. As those folks in Jerusalem did Paul. Not necessarily intentionally, not necessarily maliciously. They just don't understand, and so they're prone to misrepresent the Jewish believers about what Paul was teaching the Gentile believers. They heard some of it and not all of it, and they didn't get it. Or from what the early Romans heard of the Christians observing the Lord's Supper. Have you ever heard that story? They accused the Christians of cannibalism, of human sacrifice, and drinking human blood. And you say, where'd they get that idea? Well, go read the sixth chapter of John again, the second half of it. And as a believer, read it. And then come explain it to me fully. They heard those things. As you eat my blood and drink my, uh, eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. They heard that. So misunderstanding, they misrepresented. Pagans in Smyrna later on were, were convinced that the plague there had been brought about because the Christians were there. Gods were angry with them for allowing the Christians to be there. So what did they do? They killed the Christians. They just didn't get it. And your friends, your co-workers, the neighbors, the people around you won't get you either. It's what Peter meant when he wrote, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, most of you probably never ran with that sort of a crowd. You have the testimony the rest of us would like to have. But some have run with that sort of a crowd or like crowds. And now you've broken those old ways. Now your old friends don't understand. All they know is you've got religion. (laughs) You've become holier than thou.
And they misrepresent you because they misunderstand you. Welcome to trying to live for Jesus in a fallen world. Oh, the whole point is this. When, when you try to live for Jesus like Paul was doing, you're going to be the odd man out or the odd woman out. It's just, that's it. I wish I could paint a better picture. But that's it. Anybody ever heard of Francesco Bernardoni? I think that's where it's pronounced, or Bernardone. He was the spoiled son of a wealthy cloth merchant in the Italian village of Assisi in the 12th and 13th centuries. He was in the center of the village social life. He was a social butterfly. He was, in fact, the life of every party. Everything changed for him one day when he confronted a poor leper on the road. And in that leper, he saw Christ. He saw Christ as one of the least of these my brethren. Years later, he wrote, When I was in sin, the sight of lepers nauseated me beyond measure. But then God himself led me into their company, and I had pity on them. When I had once become acquainted with them, what had previously nauseated me became a source of spiritual and physical consolation for me. After that, I did not wait long before leaving the world. And he began ministering to lepers, cleansing their sores, praying, began rebuilding chapels and churches, trying to live for Jesus, trying to live out the gospel. With the result that all his friends thought he was crazy. He had gone insane. His father eventually disinherited, disowned him. He did so in a church trial. And at the conclusion of that trial, Francis took off every strip, piece of clothes, every stitch of clothes that he had on because they were all made with his father's cloth. And he had been disinherited. He stood, my uncle Sheldon would have said, buck naked on the front steps of the porch of the church. The bishop hurriedly covered him with his cloak. Yeah. Frankly, you figured it out by now. Francis is St. Francis of Assisi. Francesco was St. Francis of Assisi. A man who is known for trying to live for Jesus. He was misunderstood. He was misrepresented. He was the odd man out. All of which leads to this question. Are you willing to be that person? You don't have to stand naked on the front porch of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. But are you willing to be that person, the odd man out, the odd woman out? To be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, 
to risk seeming to fail, to suffer. Just, just for trying to live for Jesus. Just for Jesus' sake. Are you willing to live those words we sang that closed our very first gathering song this morning? Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, who loved us and sent our Lord Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that he might come and live the life that we can never live, not on our own. To bear our sins and our guilt, our shortcomings, our failures in his body on the cross, there to shed his blood and die in our place, bearing our grief, bearing our guilt, bearing our sin, but also bearing the punishment we deserve for those sins. How we praise you and thank you. And pray, our Father, that by your Spirit and his sovereign empowering of us, we might this day and all the days to come live for him who is our Savior and Lord, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.